A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear by Matthew Hongoltz Hetling tells the story of the Freetown Project, which was a whole bunch of libertarians that took over a town in New Hampshire in the 2000s. Uh, the experiment lasted about 12 years, I think, and they took over the legislature and they tried to build the libertarian utopia. They were inspired, of course, by Galtz Gulch, Galtz Gulch and they we're testing this theory. What happens when you build a society based on greed? And I just want to highlight just five of the ways in which Galt's Gulch can go wrong. So the town that the Freetowners uh, set their eyes upon to take over was called Grafton. And one of the initial obstacles that these Freetowners had to overcome was they actually had to like jettison some of the original visionaries behind this project uh, because some of the original visionaries, the most foundational uh, people in creating this Freetown project were, were, quite, were quite toxic to the project. So quote, if all went as planned, hundreds of Freetowners would concentrate their voting power to effect a political makeover, transforming a small American town from a stodgy and unattractive thicket of burdensome regulations into an anything goes frontier where according to a website created by Pindarvis, who's one of these original four colonists, citizens should assert certain inalienable rights, such as the right to have more than two junk cars on private property, the right to gamble, the right to engage in school truancy, the right to traffic drugs, and the right to have incestual intercourse. Oh, and also Pendarvis sought to assert the right to traffic organs, the right to hold duels, and the God-given underappreciated right to organize so-called bum fights in which people who are homeless or otherwise indigent are paid small amounts of money to engage in fisticuffs. Logic is a strange thing. End quote. So that logic is a strange thing uh, sentence at the end is a reference to the fact that earlier in this book, uh, our author cited uh, studies about who are libertarians. And he cited studies that said libertarians um, are, are much more likely than any other political affiliation to say that logic is the most important thing in governing policy. That when we come up with our political values, it should all be governed by logic. And so that's what he means by logic is a strange thing. But it, it goes to show that um, in this world of libertarian utopias, in this world of trying to create a free society, an ideal, idyllic society, you're going to attract uh, some very far out extreme notions about what that you know look, looks like. You're going to attract people who are motivated um, by some pretty uh, unsavory things. Another very memorable story that comes up in this book um, is the story of the Grafton Church. The Grafton Church is this magnificent building built in the 1700s, uh, extremely beautiful architecture, extremely important to the character of the town. The town of Grafton would actually run uh, some government functions out from within the church. They would, would have certain, uh, you know, governmental meetings and, and, and communal events. Um, and at, at one point, uh, the, church, the church leadership decides that they no longer need the church. And so they're looking to sell the church. And they offer to sell it to the town of Grafton for many Hoping on the chance to buy and control the fate of the property was a no-brainer. 
but spending tax funds on a suspiciously sentimental concept like protecting the character of the town was opposed by a burgeoning population of libertarians. The Freetowners joined ranks with the reluctant taxpayers among Grafton's longtime residents to form a large vocal majority of those who expressed a position on the church's disposition. In the end, the town rejected the offer. Remarkably, the church leadership responded to the rejection with an even more generous offer. They asked if the town wanted the property for free. Even more remarkably, the town said no. It came down once again to money. Because there were no zoning requirements in Grafton, the town had never formally inspected the building, so questions about the maintenance costs remained unanswered. The property could stand for another hundred years, or it might be on the verge of succumbing to fire, flood, or roof collapse. End quote. And so it's another example of the way that capitalism breaks down in the absence of, of certain uh, common sense regulations. Like, if you don't have zoning laws and you don't have re inspection requirements, um, it, it becomes impossible to even assess the quality of what you're purchasing. The next disaster in the story of the Freetown Project is a big portion, a big section of the book, and it's a fascinating and, and somewhat harrowing read. It's the story, it's the history of fires in Grafton and the story of the history of their police, uh, excuse me, their fire department in this town of Grafton because their fire department was always underfunded and uh, neglected by the taxpayers. And it took decades and decades of tragedy and travesties, uh, decades of out of control fires that burned down houses and then would burn down neighboring houses uh, before they finally would get their act together. And uh, the Graftonites um, would, would finally fund a, a working fire department. Now this was, in the early 20th century, um, even before the Freetown experiment, which is obviously a much more recent phenomenon. So when the Freetowners uh, came in, they were eager to undo all of this progress and to sort of go back to the dark ages. And uh, there's an amazing moment in the book um, where all like the Graftonites are, are together and they're trying to figure out how are we going to have the best of both worlds? We can't have taxes. Uh, we can't fund anything. Um, but we need some like basic fire protections and there would be like moments where someone would be like, okay, I have an idea. Like, why don't we just like, uh, collect money from people and they'd be like, oh, actually we can't do that. That'd be like taxes. You know, we can't, it's like, it's like bizarre. Like they'd be inventing taxes from scratch. Um, they, they thought maybe we, maybe we could do like a donation system. Like people can just like volunteer. Um, and they of course realized that that would not work because no one in Grafton, uh, would volunteer for public services. Um, ultimately they managed to scrounge together you know, something of a fire department with some, you know, meager little budget. And the person who takes almost sole responsibility for the success of the town's fire department is a man by the name of J John Babiars, who takes fires very seriously. He volunteers and he's like the, the town's sole firefighter. And he also happens to be one of the real important founders of this Freetown movement. And he also uh, has runs for governor in uh, the state of New Hampshire. Um, and he does surprisingly well as a gubernatorial candidate. And then we come to this chapter, The Campfire Clash, which tells this 
incredible story. Uh, a bunch of Graftonites wanted to do a campfire, and, and they were doing it next to uh, a building that was a major fire hazard. They were doing it next to dry grass, and it was a very, very hot, hot, dry day in Grafton. And uh, John Babiars comes out in his fire truck to extinguish the uh, campfire. Eventually, um, a video is posted online of John Babiars uh, putting out the, the campfire. Quote, the libertarian-themed website, New Hampshire Free Press, carried an article that said Babiars had shown that elected libertarians will, in a pinch, act just like every other bureaucrat in order to keep their positions of power. The Post unlocked a flood of criticism of Babiars, who was in the midst of, a, of his third campaign for governor. Former libertarian supporters savaged him as a petty, corrupt, jackboot-wearing, authoritarian, control-freak thug with a hard-on for paper permits. But for Babiars, who had no intention of apologizing, the whole incident had crossed the line from an all-in-good-fun freedom-fighting to something more sinister. They thought it was a joke, he said, recalling the incident years later. Babiars has a fun, even goofy side to him, but when it comes to fires, his tone is always somber. No, it was serious. It was a high-danger day. They were burning too close to a building. And it goes on uh, to describe the, the toll that this takes on Babiars, who's basically exiled, excommunicated from this town that he helped founded, that he helped, that he believed in. And it just goes to show uh, the chaos, the anarchy, the absurdity of uh, <laughs> allowing people to um, take whatever risks they want, uh, risks that endanger other people, and to not have sort of uh, sensible regulations that are designed by people with, with a sense of expertise, with a experience, a first-hand experience with fires. The last incident that characterizes, that most characterizes, this Freetown project is the incidents and the run-ins with the Bears. So because of the lack of zoning laws and the lack of social services to clean up garbage, uh, the Freetown project developed a major bear problem. And that is the main focus of this book. Bears would, you know, kill house pets. Bears would be, you know, scavenging for uh, food in people's backyards. And two sort of camps emerged uh, within the Freetown project, uh, within the citizenry. There was no, obviously, no government response available to this bear problem. Uh, in, in Grafton, two sort of approaches emerged. You had half the Graftonites who loved the bears, who left out food for the bears on purpose, who loved watching the bears from their porches. And the other half of the Graftonites who had saw what the bears can do. They can kill uh, livestock, and in some extreme cases, they attacked people in Grafton. And they hated the bears, and they wanted to get rid of the bears. And so half the Graftonites are out feeding the bears and attracting bears, and the other half are out killing bears. And they would go out during hibernation season and kill bears in their den. And he describes how these are people who are used to hearing gunfire, because they're you know, gun-toting, gun-loving libertarians. It, Grafton would sound like a war zone. Just so much gunfire in the woods, people going on these ex insane bear-killing hunts. And, and it would, there would be like a, evolve some sort of like mob rule in Grafton where ominous looking people would make thinly veiled threats to other Graftonites um, and say, you know, uh, we, need, we need you to stop feeding the bears or there's going to be like consequences for you. 
um, and just uh, like total chaos, like total civil war almost, sort of summarizing what happened to Grafton. Our author writes, quote, For Grafton's Freetowners, Rand's vision of a market-driven society was what kept them privatizing and deregulating everything they could. For seven long years, they joined thrift-minded allies in issuing vociferous challenges to every rule and tax dollar in sight. One by one, expenditures were flayed from the, from the municipal budget. Bits of services peeled away like so much flesh. They permanently extinguished most of the town's streetlights to save on electricity bills and discontinued long stretches of dirt road to save on highway materials and equipment. The town rejected funding for frills like community Christmas lights and 4th of July fireworks. Contrary to the libertarians' expectations, however, real life in the free town seemed to be almost the reverse of Rand's fictional vision. By 2011, while the rest of America was chugging along unperturbed, the holes in Grafton's public services gaped stubbornly, creating a spreading malaise. The number of annual sex offender registrations reported by police increased steadily from 8 in 2006 to 22 in 2010, one in 60 residents. In 2006, Chief Kenyon joined state authorities in arresting three Grafton men connected with a meth production lab in the town. And in 2011, Grafton was home to its first murder in living memory. In 2013, police shot and killed another Grafton man in the wake of an armed robbery. All of these public services, roads, bridges, town offices, lighting, police mobility, and more were sacrificed as casualties in the all-important battle to keep property taxes low. And of course, this results in basically a max exodus from the town and a, the total failure of the uh, Freetown project. Towards the end of the book, uh, our author describes sort of what's left of this, of this experiment. And he visits the town and he describes what he sees. In a move that seemed strangely reminiscent of Donald Trump's efforts along the southern border of the United States, the anarcho-communists of Tent City decided to build a big, beautiful barrier to keep the bears at bay. They scrounged some chain-link fencing pallets and other scraps of building materials and got to work, looking past the scarecrow sentries and down the embankment and down the embankment. I could see the fruits of their labor in the woods. The cabins at the heart of Tent City were all joined together by a stockade that could, in theory, block bears from accessing the humans inside. Sections of fence, sections of chain fence were topped by soda cans filled with BBs designed to rattle loudly if the bears tried to breach the walls in the night. Here I thought was another irony, in that those who had come to this patch of woods seeking the ultimate freedom were instead barricading themselves into a rudimentary fortress to attain some level of security that was not being provided by the government. 